Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 22nd. We continue in our ser- our series of looking at the book of Job. This week, we're going to pick up the speed a little bit. We're going to look at several chapters, kind of combining them together, chapters three through seven. You know, Job is the story of a man undergoing a very severe testing of his faith. And as we saw in chapters one and two, Job was unaware that he was the subject of this test between God and Satan. And he experienced all these series of calamities that wiped out all that he held of value. And one day he lost all of his possessions, his children, and then he lost his health. He was afflicted with this disease that left him covered with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, which actually disfigured him um, in his appearance and, and turned him into this very repulsive looking person. And to top it all off, his wife turned against him and she suggested that he should curse God and commit suicide. And yet, despite all these pressures, Job is still trusting in the mercy and the love and grace of God. And he refuses to do what Satan is trying to get him to do, which is to curse God and to die. And so the book has already proven a rebuke to many of us who have been confronted with far less reasons, but have done what Job refused to do. We, we have cursed. I have cursed God, taken him to task, resented what he was, is doing, and refused to acknowledge him as a just and good and loving God. And at this point in the book, Job uh, of, of Job, Satan moves up sort of the big artillery, and he, he leads three of Job's friends to come and comfort him. And when these friends arrive, they're shocked at what they see. Here's their, their dear friend, Job, respected, admired, an attractive man, now this hulk of a person sitting on an ash heap, scraping his sores with broken pieces of pottery. And so they sit in silence for seven days before they can muster up enough courage to speak to Job about his troubles. But, but it's also apparent as, as we get into the story that while they've waited in silence, they have begun to suspect that perhaps Job is going through something that maybe he really deserves. And, and we will see how Satan uses this to increase his torture, his anguish. So chapter three begins around a dialogue between Job and his friends. And, and this dialogue constitutes a major part of the book. And, and the reason why it is given to us be, will be revealed in this discussion between Job and his three friends. The chapter opens with this lament from Job, and you know weeks have gone by since he was first afflicted with this disease, and God does not seem to explain what he is doing. And Job doesn't know anything and, and hasn't been informed of in the opening chapter. So he's baffled, he's confused, he's tormented, he's in physical memory, misery, excuse me. And now he opens his mouth with this cry where he really longs for death. And that's where Job is found in the opening part of the book, crying out for death, cursing the day that he was born. And in this chapter, we will find that he asks three very poignant questions. The first one is, why was I ever born? So this beautiful, eloquent way he expresses that in beginning chapter three of Job. So after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. 
Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter into it. Let those curse it who curse the day who are already to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. So this book is written in some amazing poetry, and, and, and I'm going to try to read as much of it as I can so that we don't miss the eloquence of it. The, I mean, this is just in and of itself a phenomenal work of literature, a phenomenal work of poetry. Um on top of being the, of course, inspired word of God. And he's looking back into that, to his David's birth. And, and although he can't change that, he's saying, you know, may the, may the anniversary of it be ignored. Let it be a day that's darkened. Let, don't, no one's going to rejoice in it. Let it be a day of cursing instead of blessing. The reason Job gives for this is in verse 10, because I was born on that day, it produced me. So this is the point. This is the point of, of where his life is and how miserable he has become and how he longs for death. Even, even all that he's enjoyed in the past seems no value anymore in the face of all this anguish that he has to endure. Now, this is given to us in order that we might understand that others have gone through trials far worse than we have. And although Job comes very close to cursing God, he never does. He, he curses the day of his birth. He curses what God has allowed to happen. We can see how the pressure is increasing and Job is beginning to break and crumble under it. And, and it is this unceasing, unexplained anguish. And, and, and I don't think anything is harder for us to bear than unexplained trouble. I mean, if we could see some reason for what we have to go through, we could endure it much, much more easily. But, but when the trouble seems to be pointless and nothing is accomplished by it, it, it's, it's this terrible strain on us. And this is what Job is experiencing. So he cries out, why was it that I was even born? And then in verses 11 through 19, his second question is, well, having been born, well, why didn't I just die at birth? Um, why did I die, not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did, why did the knees receive me or, or why the breast that I should nurse? My life has been totally meaningless, Job says. It, 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 would have been, it would have been better to have died when I was born. And then he goes on to give us this view of death. And, and now this is revealing because as we see this view of death that is much more primitive than what we have in the New Testament, it's much more of a natural view, one that many people have have who do not know anything about the scripture at all. So I'm picking up in verse 13, for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with the princes who had gold and filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary, weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They, they don't hear the voice of the taskmaster, and the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. So Job views death as, as a time of rest, a period of solitude and quiet after, after a troubled life. And these verses indicate that Job's understanding of life after death has to be enlightened a great deal. And, and, and that, that's one of the reasons why this suffering perhaps came in, into his life. And at the end of the book, uh, Job's view of, of death is very different than it was at the beginning. Job's third question is then, well, why can't I die now? Why was I born? 
but having been born, why didn't I die when I came out of the womb? And since that didn't happen, why can't I just die now? Picking up in verse 20, there, why is light given to him who is in misery uh, and life to the bitter in the soul who long for death, but it, but, it, but it doesn't come and dig it for more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is this light given to man whose way is hidden from God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So Job's argument is, well, what's the purpose of my life? Or what use is life that is so filled with misery that you can do nothing but suffer? And, and my life produces only fear and trouble, so it would be better for it to be over now. And, and you know, many people feel that way. I, I do not think Job is necessarily thinking of suicide. I think he's simply asking God to take him home. There, there's no purpose in this life when, when, when it's not enjoyable. And, and that's a very common sentiment. And one of the reasons that we've been given this book to help us understand that life can have great meaning, a great deal of meaning, even when it looks useless, even when we feel useless. And so at this point, we get the first of the replies of the three friends of Job. One was named Eliphaz, one was Bildad, and the third was Zophar. And these friends have all come with the same solution to the problem, but they approach it in very distinct, three dif- distinct ways according to their personalities. And so as we read through this, we're going to sort of dub them in terms that describe the approach that he, each takes. So first of all, we have Eliphaz the elegant, Bildad the brutal, and Zophar the zealous. Eliphaz is the first speaker, which probably meant he was the oldest. There's a smoothness about him, a courtesy, at least at the beginning, that indicates that he is he has learned to say not very pleasant things in very gracious ways. Bildad is brutal and plain spoken. He just lays it out there on Job, doesn't care what the effect is. And Zophar is compassionate and he's emotional and he speaks with a great deal of impact, trying to move Job. So Eliphaz's arguments breaks down into six main points, and, and we will hear what he has to say. We'll, we'll know what these three friends will be saying all through the rest of the book. And he starts out first by saying to Job, in effect, hey, follow your own advice. So this is Eliphaz speaking. If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have held him who was stumbling and you have made him made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and integrity of your ways your hope? Basically, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you've been a counselor to, to a lot of people, and you've been able to put your finger on the problem, help them deal with it. You, you delivered them. You, you found the key to what was troubling them and helped them face it. Now, follow your own advice. Your turn has come. You've been caught in this same kind of problem that you've helped others with, so, so follow your own advice, and you'll be relieved. So then Eliphaz goes on uh, to put very plainly just what the problem is as he sees it. And in verses 7 through 11, we have his basic principle of life. Remember who that was innocent ever perished or where or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. 
By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. So Eliphaz uses this pride of lions to describe the natural strength of of people. It appears to be strong, but in God's judging hands, well, it's broken. His argument is the righteous are never punished. Only unrighteous suffer. So, so where did you ever see an innocent man perish? He asked Job. Where, where did you ever see an unrighteous man succeed? His argument is clearly that Job's problem is caused by his own willful sin, something that Job is hiding. And this will be his, the basic argument all throughout the book. There's something wrong, Job. If you will only admit it, you'll, all, you'll be all right. So Eliphaz goes on to tell Job that if he will fear God and admit his sin, then things are going to be okay. He breaks it down into a couple of parts. And first he says that he learned this truth in a vision that came to him at night. It's kind of a, it's kind of a spooky part of this passage. And so he goes, now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It, It stood still. But I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. And then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? So that's an argument based on the fact that infinite justice rules the universe. You see, Eliphaz sees God as a God of holiness and purity so spotless that even the angels of God stand defiled before him. So what chance should a person have to stand and claim to be sinless? In a sense, that's good theology. And as we will see before the end of the book, it it really has a problem. It it really was a problem that Job was facing. He did not understand all his own heart. And at the end, he confesses that fact. But the trouble with Eliphaz's argument was that he thought it had to be based on some known but, but hidden sin that Job was just simply unwilling to confess. Eliphaz sees God only as a God of justice. He sees nothing of the love and compassion and forgiveness or the discipline and training of the Father's heart of God. So because of this unbalanced theology, even though what he says is true, it becomes false in its application. And that is where a lot of error creeps in to Scripture. There's, we, we, we can quote a lot of good factual truths about the Bible, but when we try to apply them out of a false premise— we end up wrong. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, the great English preacher used to speak about preachers who went around with a theological revolver in their ecclesiastical trousers, ready to blast anybody who kind of got in the way. So then in chapter five, verses one through seven, Eliphaz argues that trouble comes only from sin. Call, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealously slays the simple. Well, that is, that is what is wrong. We, we're vexed and jealous, and, and that is why we have trouble. 
Um, I have seen the fool taking, taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. What, what a low blow. That's, that's a hidden reference to the calamity, uh, to the tragedy that came to all of Job's children. In one day, Aliphaz is suggesting that such things happen only because there is something wrong with Job's life. The hungry eat his harvest, and, and he takes it even out of the thorns, and the thirsty pant and his wealth for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble, and the sparks fly upward. Trouble comes from sin, says Eliphaz. That's the whole thing, Job. If you've got trouble, that has to be the reason. And then in the next section, verses 8 through 16, he suggests to, to Job that there's, there's no use playing games with God because God knows too much. As for me, I would seek God, and, and to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He, he gives rain on the earth. He sends waters to the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope, and injustice shuts her mouth. God is in control, Eliphaz argues. And he is so clever and so wise that you cannot deceive him. You can't hide from him, Job. He'll, he's going to trap you. He's going to uncover your sin. You might as well just get it out in the open. Eliphaz closes the section, which says, in effect, just, just give up, and, and God's going to bless you. Uh, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but he but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles and seven. No evil shall touch you and in famine. He will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. You shall not fear destruction when it comes at destruction and famine. You will laugh and you shall not fear the beasts of the earth for you shall be in the league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace. You shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall also you you'll, shall know also that your offspring shall be many and that your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its uh, season. Behold, we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. So Eliphaz argues, that if we just cast ourselves on God's mercy, he will forgive us and restore us everything and we'll be fine. That we can be confident that we will be protected and kept even to a ripe old age. Now, of course, the truth is that's not what happens. Anyone who's lived a few years at all knows that we can find godly people, people who love the Lord, um, who, who don't seem to be protected, who, who still go through times of trial, peril, suffering. We, though this sounds like good theology, it, it does not take in all the facts. And, and that's why Job is given to us, that we might learn to, to correct our theology and to understand that there are deeper reasons for suffering than just sin. In other words, the argument of Eliphaz. And we'll take Job's reply to this chapters uh, six and seven. It's divided into a couple of sections. In chapter six, Job rebukes his friends, speaking to all three of them. Probably there were 
others present listening to all this, a silent audience, except for a certain young man who comes in at the end of the book. And, and then in chapter seven, Job addresses his complaint to, to God. And there are three parts to each chapter. First, Job says he, he has a right to complain. Job replies, he says, uh, my complaint is just. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been, have, have been rash. He admits that he's been speaking very strongly, but he says, hey, if you were where I am, you'd understand. My sorrow is so terrible, it, I'm justified. It gives me good reason to complain, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low over his fodder? Can, the, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. There, is, there are as food that is loathsome to me. You, you never hear an animal complain, Job says, when he, when, when he is well-fed and taken care of. And that's why I'm complaining. You, you cannot take that which is tasteless and loathsome without trying to improve it with salt or something. So I have a right to complain. It helps me bear my troubles. And so he speaks of this inability to, to bear more. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope that he would please, that it would please God to crush me and he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when the resources is driven from me? I have no strength to handle this. What, what does God think I am made of, stone or bronze, that he subjects me to all this? Have we ever felt that way? Have we ever said, Lord, you, you promised that you would not tempt me above that which I'm able to bear? And Lord, we, we went by that point weeks ago. But God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows how much we can take. He knew how much Job could take. And he has a reason for all of this. So Job's cry goes unanswered. Well, so then Job turns to his friends and rebukes them, expressing his irritation at their misunderstanding. He, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. And when they melt, they, they disappear. And when it's hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up to waste and perish. And the caravans of Tema look, the travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They came there and were disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You, you see my calamity and you're afraid. Job says, you, your friends are like a mountain brook that's full in the, of water in the wintertime when nobody needs it. But when the hot summer comes out and you long for a refreshing water, it, it's nothing but a dry gravel filled stream bed. Even, even the caravans of camels looking for water for refreshment, well, they don't find anything there. You, you said you came to comfort me and all you've done is given me trouble. You re, you, you've, all you've done is rebuke me. So he's beyond irritated. Have I said, make me a gift or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me or deliver me from the adversary's hand or redeem me from the hand of the Ruseleth? Did I ask you to come help me? I didn't send for you. You came to comfort me and instead you're rebuking me. I didn't ask for this. 
Teach me and I'll be silent. Make, make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you re- reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My my vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? So Job is, is saying, hey, if there's something wrong, then tell me, because I don't know what it is. His dilemma is that he knows God is doing this to him, but he cannot find a reason. He knows that there's nothing in his life that he's not already confessed and dealt with. He's not claiming to be sinless. He's saying that he has handled whatever sin he has, what, what, what he has been aware of. So, so what else is there? Why, why is this going on? And then he turns to God and complains about the hardness of the experience. In chapter 7, he says, Has not a man had hard service? On earth and are not the days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I'm allotted months of emptiness and nights of, of misery are appointed to me when I lie down and say, when I, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. We get concerned when we, we get uh, something like a, a paper cut, if you will. But Job is covered with boils. And then he complains about the hopelessness of the future. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never see good again. The, the, the eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone as the cloud faces fades and vanishes. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does he place him, know him anymore. He's given up. He thinks he'll never see any relief that will go on like this to the end. And, and out of that meaningless suffering and hopeless darkness, he cries out in, in just honest and honest despair about loathing his life and, and, and wanting to be left alone. Um, um, if I sin, what do I, what do I do to you? You watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take my away my iniquity for now? I shall lie in the earth, but you will seek me, but I shall not be. Have we ever maybe felt that way? Have we ever thought it maybe articulated, you know, Lord, leave me alone. I've, I've had enough. Why are you so intent on making life miserable? For me, why don't you just let me go? So Job cries out in this baffled bewilderment. And now even at this point in the book, there are some things that we have to constantly remember. One is we know something about the scene that Job does not know. We see some purpose in this that he has not yet seen. And we also see what is true about the sufferings we go through. We, in every time of trial, there, there are two purposes, at least in view. Satan has his purpose and God has his and, and Satan's purpose here was to use the pain of Job's illness to, to afflict his body, to, to use the, the well-intended comfort of his friends to irritate him and to use the silence of God to assault his spirit, to break his faith. But God's purpose is to teach Job some truths that he never knew before, to deepen 
his his theology to help him understand God much better. God's God's truth was to answer Satan in the eyes of the principalities and powers of the whole universe and to prove him wrong in his philosophy of life. God's purpose was also to provide a demonstration for all the sufferers in all ages that would follow that God knows what he is doing. He is trustworthy. And as the book of Job unfolds, we'll see how this gradually, gradually is brought to light. And, and what an encouragement to those of us who, ha- who must go through some time of suffering to understand that it's not always, it's, it's not always because we're sinful. Sometimes it is, and, and, we, and, and we will know when it is because of the Holy Spirit. But if, like Job, we, we know nothing of what we've done or what we haven't dealt with and there's still suffering goes on, we, ha- we can look behind that curtain. We can try to glimpse behind that curtain of God's purposes. And we can see that there is something great and something eternal is hanging, is hanging on the outcome of that struggle. Amen. And God bless.